Let's begin this morning with prayer. Lord, this morning, a few things we want to lift up. First of all, the upcoming elections, uh, all the goings-on that are connected to that, uh, conversations, the... the, uh, All the opportunities, really, that we have, Lord, to be salty, bright, and aromatic, and to see you as on your throne, as reigning and ruling. Uh, Lord, we, uh, I pray for this people, for those that are, are here this morning, that are part of those conversations, that we can come off in a world that may put too much emphasis on these things as folks that are just settled that recognize that ultimately you are reigning and ruling whoever is sitting in whatever seat or office. And at the same time, Lord, we do pray for your will to be done in a way that will advance the kingdom. We pray for your will to be done in this judge election and some of these other elections, that folks that will take take those offices will be people that will lead well and would lead in a way that would give us opportunity to enjoy you freely and for the kingdom to move forward freely. Lord, I do pray, I want to pray especially for the judge, upcoming election for a local judge. I pray that whoever uh, wins that election will be a man that will want to walk with you and with your people as the ultimate source of justice. And I cannot fathom how anybody could want to take this office without walking closely with you. So I beg for that relationship, whoever the victor may be. Um, I pray that'll be an outcome. Two, Lord, we want to pray for uh, Billy Walker, uh, a man this morning that is being called to pastor Chapel Hill Church. I want to pray for Billy as a teacher, as a friend, as a minister, so many different capacities that he has, also as a father and a grandfather Lord, I pray that you will be glorified in the way that you will use Billy at this Chapel Hill Church. I pray that he'll be surrounded by men that have access to him. In other words, men that can speak honestly and truthfully into his life, that he will find a plural sort of environment there where he he has someone's back and someone has his back and where he can receive even something that may be criticism um, because of what's at stake. Lord, we pray for Chapel Hill Church, we pray that it'll be a, a people that will be, will be well-equipped because of what you'll do through Billy. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for one of our family members, Billy Vaughn, uh, with a diagnosis of cancer this week. Lord, in a lot of ways, Billy is alone, but in a lot of ways, he's not. With his church family that surrounds him, that calls him brother, Lord, I pray that we can come alongside this man and that we can encourage him, we can pray with him and pray for him through this trial. And Lord, we pray first and foremost for your glory through it. And we do share, second of all, that the desire of our heart, our heart, is for healing. And we ask you to heal him and restore him to health for many more years of worship with us as a people. Lord, we are thankful for this trial and for this opportunity for you to be glorified. We pray that you will find us attentive and responsive. Lord, this morning, as far as this message goes, I pray for clarity that I'm not capable of. I pray for an attentiveness that we're not capable of. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to hearts and that he will equip us for worship and wonder. 
We turn this time over to you. I'm thankful for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're glad you're here this morning. I want to welcome you. Are these lights turned down like I like them? I don't like to be too bright. See, I don't want to see too many faces. If somebody's sleeping, I don't want to be able to see them. Um, if you're here for the first time or first of a few times, we are really glad you're here. Uh, I hope that you feel welcome. I hope that someone says hi to you at some point and meets you and learns your name. And um, I know that there can be an occasional Sunday or a situation where that may not happen, where people may be talking to folks that they're close to and they may miss you. So I hope that doesn't happen this morning. At least from, from this moment right here, I hope that you know and you hear that we are a close family. We really enjoy each other as a church and uh, we are glad and privileged that you're sharing this time with us this morning. If this is your first of a few times, you're going to need your Bible this morning. Uh, we don't really, I don't do talkie talks. I don't do speeches um, I don't really have much to say apart from exposing God's word. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one. You can find one in the seat back and, or under the seat in front of you. Or if you, don't, um, if you don't have one of your own, you can have that one. You can just put your name in the front of that one and that, can, that one can become yours. But you'll need your Bible this morning. And turn to Hebrews chapter 6. This is going to be home base for us. We've been moving through the book of Hebrews for uh, off and on for the last couple of years. It hasn't been straight. But we have had a sweet journey in the book of Hebrews. A couple of weeks ago, I guess it's been three Sundays ago, we began two sermons, that sermon and then the sermon before last, that were really, really, it was, they were challenging messages because they were dealing with a passage of Scripture that's likely the sternest warning in our Bibles from who we believe to be a pastor to his church. We believe the writer of Hebrews was a pastor and that he was the pastor for the Hebrews church, likely in Rome, what we would have probably called, what we might call now, a Messianic Jewish church. It seems to be a largely Jewish, Christ-believing people. And we think in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but some of the details point toward them being in Rome. But we had two Sundays there where we dealt with some really hard truths and hard warnings and even a hard critique that said, man, you guys are babies, you're milk drinkers, and you need to be meat eaters. I mean, he dealt with some hard stuff. And then the last Sunday and this Sunday, he sort of went the other direction. He said, okay, let's be a well-rounded shepherd here. If I'm going to critique you, I want to also affirm you. So last week was a sweet time of affirmation, a sweet time of encouragement. I'll read the passage that we, we looked at last week just so we can kind of grab some of those details because we're going to need just a little flavor of what we've considered as we move forward this week. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, that's the warning that, he, that he's just given this church. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. That in some ways was the title of last week's message. Things that belong to salvation. We're seeing these things in your lives and here's what they are. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and love that you showed for his sake in the serving of the saints as you still do. He's affirming them and saying, you know what, guys? In a lot of ways, you're on the bubble. In a lot of ways, I'm very concerned about your future in the faith. I can see that you're considering going back to Judaism, which is tantamount to bailing on Christ, which is tantamount to losing Yahweh. So I'm concerned about those things, but I want to affirm you in some things that I am seeing that belong to salvation. And I'm seeing your work and your love for the saints. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. A couple things that we added to work and love, we added last week, faith and patience. And an encouragement there not to be sluggish, but rather to imitate those who are moving well faithfully and patiently. So in some ways, we sort of gathered up four things that he's grabbing there as things that are evidence of salvation or signs of salvation. Work and love, faith and patience. And then today we're going to look at another element of what he seems to be communicating is characteristic of those who are his hope. Today's sermon is really going to have two parts. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. I'm going to sort of unpack that. We're going to need to go back and grab some things in our Old Testament, things that the Hebrews church would have had ready, readily available, things that they would have grown up hearing, things that you may have grown up hearing, but not every single one of us has. So we're going to go back and grab them. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but enough time that we have them sitting around us so we can make sense of them. That'll be verses 13 through 18. In a lot of ways, this will be a case study for someone who's worth imitating. He's just said, imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. And now he's going to give an example of somebody to follow in verses 13 through 18. And then in the last couple of verses, verses 19 and 20 will be the second part of the message in terms of unpacking. We're going to unpack verses 19 and 20 and sort of get our hands around hope. What is hope? And then we're going to have three things that we can do with this as a church. Three things to walk away with. So that's the plan for the morning. Let's begin in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, unless you've read this beforehand, your head's probably swimming right now. I've been bathing in this paragraph for the last week and longer, and just reading it, I'm like, man, that's going to be a challenge to unpack. We're not going to spend a lot of time unpacking it. We're going to move to the illustration. He's speaking about Abraham, and he's speaking about something that God did with Abraham. So we're going to go back and just look at the passages that sort of tell the story so we can make sense of what he's saying here. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. We'll look at a few different passages here in Genesis. Genesis 12 is where God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, told him, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. You're going to inherit this land. And he makes some promises to him, but we're going to pick up the promise in chapter 15 that the Hebrews preacher is speaking of. It's sort of a developing promise. And it really begins in verse 15 beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is one of my servants, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You've told me to go to this land that I'm going to inherit. You've told me that my offspring would be as numerous as the, as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and yet my heir is my servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, this is all he did. He believed the Lord. He believed him and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham was about 70 to 75 years or so old when this promise came about. And then in the next chapter, it looks like Abraham and Sarah are going to figure out the plan to get their blessing from God. They're going to manufacture an answer to what God has promised to them. So Sarah says, you know what? We're still childless. God made us his promise, yet I don't see any little rugrats running around. Eleazar is the only offspring we've got, and he's not offspring. He's a servant. So you know what, Abram, Abraham, I don't know if he was renamed at that point, take my servant, Hagar, an Egyptian servant, go in and lie with her, and that'll be my boy. That'll be my child. They're going to manufacture an answer to God's promise and manufacture, manufacture a solution to this blessing with Hagar and this boy that would be born, born later, born <laughs> when he's 86 years old, named Ishmael. Now, fast forward to chapter 17, beginning in verse 15. At this point, Abraham's 99 years old. He's 75 years old when this promise is first made to him. He's 86 when Ishmael is born. 10 to 11 years after the promise is made, he's trying to figure out a way, he and Sarah, where they can fulfill God's promise well, he's 99 years old, this thing happens in chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. I mean, just take it in for a minute. The promise is made to him when he's 75 years old. He's 99 years old. No baby has shown up yet. God's been promising this thing to him. He hears it from God yet again, and he laughs. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look, God, we produced Ishmael. Maybe he can be a fulfillment of this promise that you're making to me because I don't see any sign that you're doing so otherwise. So maybe Ishmael can be the child of the promise. And God said, Nope. 
Your Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. All right, there's the promise again. And let's look over at chapter 21 and see what happens a year later. 25 years after the promise is first made. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said in verse 1, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, just like God said he would. Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? I mean, really, the answer to that is nobody unless they're crazy. Who would have said to Sarah that you're going to nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Man, when you look at the promise, you look at what unfolded. Now, it took a while, but it's pretty awesome. You can hear that baby crying. You can see these two old folks, old, old folks, holding this baby and saying, man, just like God said, just like God did. Man, God followed through on his promise, and it's pretty cool. And Abraham did a pretty good job waiting. Pretty good job. We can't say it was exemplary, but he did a pretty good job hanging in there. I mean, he didn't move move back to Ur or anything. And he stayed put, still, you know, hoping, trying to manufacture a blessing on his own. But yet, for the most part, he did a pretty good job. But then turn over to the next chapter. Things are going well. The promise seems like it's in play. Seems like God is going to bless Abraham just like he said he's going to bless him. This is the child of the promise. And then comes chapter 22. Like, oh man, things were going so well. And then comes chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Man, up to this point, I bet if you asked Abraham, you said, Abraham, man, God is good. And he said, yeah, God is good all the time. And he would repeat back, all the time, God is good. I bet he would have a big smile, big Christian smile. Everything's just awesome. Everything's so good. It took a while, 25 years. But here he is, born to a couple of old folks. But then God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. <laughs> it's just an amazing transition to the next verse. I mean, you just there's nothing. You want some more content. Tell me what Abraham thought. Tell me what he and Sarah talked about. Tell me how this unfolded instead of moving right on to verse 3. But that's all we've got is verse 3. Abraham rises up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, this is a heartbreaking moment. I mean, just climb into this story for a minute. Isaac says, dad, he said, yeah, son, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This passage in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 18 where it's talking about an oath that's sworn against himself. This is ultimately where he's landing. Post attempted sacrifice of Isaac. It's a developing promise, and he's referring to the entire promise. But ultimately, he's pointing back to this passage here in Genesis chapter 22, where, Isaac, where Abraham, in many ways, received the promise of his son twice. He received the birth, and then in some ways, he received a rebirth when that boy walked down that mountain with his father, still breathing. Man, something that's really cool in this passage in Hebrews 6. I want you to go back over there because I want you to see this. I want your eyes on this. There's two phrases in here that help us make sense of what this has to do with the Hebrews church and what it would ultimately have to do with us. In verse 17 it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose... This tells us that God is wanting to show something here. He swore an oath against himself at this point 2,000 years earlier. Abraham was 2,000 years or so before the Hebrews church is getting this letter. They're about as far from Abraham as we are from their church time-wise. 
And their preacher is reminding him of this old ancient dude named Abraham. And reminding them of God making a promise for a purpose and then swearing against himself in order to show them something. The heirs of the promise. Who is he thinking of there? He's thinking of the Hebrews church. When God makes this promise against himself 2,000 years earlier, he's got the Hebrews church in view. And he's got Crosspoint Fellowship in view another 2,000 years later. And every church that's ever been before or since. He's got the heirs of the promise in view when he makes an an oath against himself. How you make sense of this is this phrase at the beginning of verse 18. So that, that's a henna clause that I've taught you about, in order that for the purpose of. God is showing more convincingly to the heirs of the promise in order that, look down halfway through that verse, in order that we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. God is doing something in this passage when he's making a promise and an oath against himself to Abraham. He is showing the heirs of that promise and those that would flee to him for refuge, fellow fugitives, that he can be trusted. God's wanting them to see the connection between what he promised Abraham and God's fulfillment of that promise and their context in Rome. He's wanting them to see the connection that God was at work then to help them make sense of their context in Rome. And don't miss that the fulfillment of this promise was via significant trial. Sacrifice your son. It was via significant test, not punishment. Via significant test, the fulfillment of the promise. He wants the Hebrews church to see the surety of this so that the Hebrews church will find encouragement in their context and not just any old average encouragement, but strong encouragement. God made an oath against himself so that they would have strong encouragement. He wants them to have something to hold fast to. And that thing that he wants them to hold fast to is hope. That moves us to our last couple of verses. We're going to learn some more about hope. First of all, we know that hope is something we can and should hold fast to. So let's look at verse 19 and 20 and unpack the rest of this to make sense of what we're looking at. We have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So far, hope has been illustrated. In these passages before, as we look at Abraham and we see promises made and we see promises fulfilled, we see something that's developing that he wants them to be able to hold on to. It's got something that God wants the heirs of the promise to hold on to. But then he develops this more so we have more things to hold on to. That hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now the soul, the soul is difficult to define. The soul in some ways is the immaterial part of who you are. I don't want to work too hard at that because I don't want to come off as somehow Gnostic where you're 
your, your flesh and your soul are somehow distinct from each other, but they are to the degree in which when you die, your soul will go, go on to be with the Lord if you're in Christ. The soul is that immaterial part of who you are. It's that deep inner man, our inner woman, our inner child. And this passage here tells us that there is such thing as a sure and steadfast anchor for that immaterial part of you. And it implies that that immaterial part of you needs one. Man, some of y'all know the tragic story of those that have no anchor of the soul. That move adrift from one place or one vice to the next. Or one relationship to the next. Or one heartbreaking situation to the, le- to the next looking for some sort of mooring. Because the soul was made for anchoring. And this passage tells us that the sure and steadfast anchor for the soul is hope. It also tells us that this hope penetrated into the inner place behind the curtain. This is pointing back to Leviticus chapter 16. I'd like for you to turn there. This is the other Old Testament passage that we're just going to kind of have handy and have ready around us as we try and make sense of what this passage has to do with us. Leviticus 16 is one of the treasures in our Bibles that are just dusty. Many Bibles, many of you... uh, maybe have not even ever read this chapter. It is a delightful chapter. It's about something called the Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. The Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. It was so likely, so common, and so well known for the Hebrews church where this Hebrews pastor can mention it just in passing and make his point. But it's not that readily available for us. So we're going to take a minute just to get it handy. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to skip little sections here and there, but I'll let you know where I'm skipping. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. That's Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire. Nadab and Abihu sort of went freestyle in their worship. They said, we're going to kind of do whatever we want to do. You know, God has prescribed ways of going about worshiping him, but we're going to do our own thing. And Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. We don't really know what that means. All we know is is that they offered strange fire and then they actually became consumed in the fire that they offered. They actually became the sacrifice that they were trying to make. So the Lord speaks to Aaron, their dad, when they drew near before and referring right right next to, I mean, chronologically, it is right after the death of Nadab and Abihu. And God says to tell Mo, tells Moses to tell Aaron something. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come freestyle to me at any time. Don't just come strolling up to me. And don't you dare come strolling into my holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die like his boys did. Connect the story here. Context, he's saying, okay, Aaron, I'm going to tell you how you can come into my presence. You can't do it like your boys did. I'm going to tell you specifically how you can come into my presence and how you can not only only make yourself right before me, but make the people right before me. For I I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. 
He shall put on the holy linen coat and have the, the, the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He even going to have holy clothing on, even undergarments. This is how you come before the Lord. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats. These goats are important. He takes two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that's over the testimony, so that he does not die. Let me tell you something, folks. I know this kind of stuff. Man, here we are 2,000 years later after this. It's kind of hard to relate to. It's not something that just daily sort of conversation. It's not daily imagery for us. But climb into his context for a moment. His two sons have just been consumed by fire that they offered inappropriately and offered wrongly. You think he's going to be paying attention? Man, he's going to be all up in this. I bet Moses is going to make very careful, make very sure that he's conveying the information accurately. And he's doing all this so that he will not die. So that he can come into the presence of the Lord and not die. Look at verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. That's the imagery that the Hebrews preacher is using with the Hebrews church. It's where our hope goes inside the veil because that's where Christ went inside the veil. We're going to connect these dots here in a moment. We've got to get this, this furniture surrounding us. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Look down at verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Look over at verse 29. This day that I'm instructing you about, Aaron... People of Israel, this day of atonement shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. He's saying you shall fast. 
And you shall do no work, either, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you of your sins. Man, this is a big, important day. If the nation of Israel is going to travel with a holy God, something's got to happen to their sins. That's why this is a massively important day for the Jew. This is imagery that the Hebrews church would have been able to go right to, but it's distant for us. So we need to imagine that we're traveling with a holy God and something's got to atone for our sins. And this day is a special day. What takes place here behind the veil by the high priest? You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a good day. A really good day. Verse 32, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. This is the language that's being used here about hope penetrating the veil because Christ penetrated the veil. It's a place where only the high priest could go and what takes place there is payment for sins. If you can imagine what life must have been like on that day in the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel must have been standing around outside like a bunch of fugitives. Seeking refuge from a holy God, seeking refuge in a holy God and depending on that high priest I hope he gets it right man by this point they've seen whole sections of the camp consumed by God's white hot holiness they've seen some crazy stuff happen by this point that's just distant for us but if we can climb into it for a moment we can imagine their hearts racing around that tabernacle stand there like a bunch of fugitives boy I hope you get this right Aaron Man, this is a big day. Atone for my sins in there. This is the language the Hebrews preacher is making here, the, the, the imagery that he's incorporating into this passage. But the beautiful thing here is he's not talking about the tabernacle, holy of holies. And he's not talking about the temple, holy of holies, because the temple at this point is just a few short years away from destruction. And he knows, as they know, that's not where Jesus is. What he's talking about here, he's talking about the holiest of holies. That our hope penetrates the veil into the holiest of holies, into the throne room of the living God. Not a mock-up, not a shadow that walks around with the nation of Israel in a tent, but the real substance. That our hope penetrates the veil because the forerunner, Christ, penetrated the veil. He went where we couldn't and did what we couldn't, achieved what we couldn't. I like the language here, the language of forerunner. It has something to do with military language. It's sort of like an advanced party. I thought about this might be kind of like a recon unit. The Marine Corps has recon units. And it's cool being a recon unit because you get to get out there and you cross enemy lines and you're out there. You're kind of snooping and pooping around. You're trying to find a bad guy, trying to get the details on him, you know. But the difference there is you don't want to have contact with anybody. You don't want to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver. The imagery here better connects to like an advanced party that's out there locked and loaded with some gear to get something done. 
to exploit a weakness of the enemy with like missiles and machine guns taking care of business. That's the imagery that's used here. He penetrated the veil like a forerunner and really effectively for all of us, like a trailblazer so that we can now come boldly before the throne. Man, that's where our hope goes, where Christ went. And our hope is anchored there because of what Christ did. Man, I need my soul to be anchored. And I'm thankful that it's anchored in the throne because that's not going anywhere. And it's anchored to the throne because of what Christ did as my trailblazer. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at high priest and Melchizedek. And I'm not going to deal with the high priest references too much here, really anymore at this point, or Melchizedek. We're going to look at that in the next few weeks. I want us to figure out what we're going to do with this. If you guys manage to go the distance in this sort of unpacking the luggage, and I know it's not really exciting. It's hard to climb, climb into their context. But if you have the, the furniture sitting around you right now, let's see what we can do with this. Three things I would offer. The first thing, we can do what the Hebrews church was supposed to do with it. Imitate Abraham. Imitate Abraham. At the time when the promises were made to Abraham, he was old. Let that hit you for a minute. When the promises were made to to Abraham, he was childless. He didn't have a row of kids. He didn't have a Ford excursion because he had so many kids and stuff in the car. They call him the Ford Valdez. They're so big. I mean, they're big. Dating myself. I don't even know what the Valdez was. Exxon, look it up. Exxon Valdez. He didn't even have a kid. He's old as dirt and he's married to a woman that is also old and is barren, by the way. That's when the promises are made to him when he's childless, old, and barren. And oh, by the way, the land that's promised to him is inhabited. Imagine showing up, God you know, pulls you up in front of a house, he says, this is yours, and the light's on, and a family's sitting around the table, there's a name on the mailbox, a car in the driveway, and he says, this is yours. And you're like, oh, okay, all righty then. Man, that's when the promises were made to him, yet he walked by faith believing God when his eyes told him every reason in the world not to. Every single thing that he saw said, this ain't going to happen. How foolish he must have looked, believing God. You heard what Sarah said. Who would have said I'd be nursing a little old baby? (laughs) Nobody, unless they were crazy. But yet he believed God. And now I got to point out, he didn't believe God perfectly. I'm thankful he didn't believe him perfectly because then we're all in in a fix. (laughs) He just believed God and he believed him frailly and feebly. Remember, he's the one that tried to manufacture the answer to the blessing with Hagar and Ishmael. He's also the one that offered up Ishmael. God, you know, can you just, can Ishmael live before you and be the promised one you're talking about? Because I don't see anybody else here. He's also the one that snickered about it. Sarah snickered about the whole plan as well because at that point they were childless. Man, connect those dots and realize this guy had every reason in the world not to believe God. Everything that he saw said he shouldn't. 
Yet he waited. Yet he believed. He waited 25 years, no less. He must have looked like Noah building a boat. He must have looked like David searching for a rock. You kidding me? (laughs) Abraham, you old fool. Believe in God. My eyes tell me you're ridiculous. But he waited. And then Isaac is born. And then God makes a, a commandment, commands him to go sacrifice this answer to the promise. I'm going to give you the answer to a promise that I've made to you, and then I'm going to ask you to sacrifice it. And he's tested, not as punishment, but as part of the plan. And I thought, man, what, how troubling a trip up that mountain it must have been. What a heartbreaking, troubling trip, plod, up that mountain it must have been. And then what a wonderful skip home. Man, I I wonder if they were singing on the way down. I wonder if they were celebrating God's provision and what he did as Abraham receives him back again, as Hebrews 11 tells us. What a satisfying and wonderful trip down it must have been. The Hebrews church and this church are being encouraged to imitate Abraham. Abraham. The more and more I studied Abraham, the more and more I realized this dude is like a household name in the Christian church. In homes, Christian homes, I found passage after passage that have something to do with Abraham, like it's used in the language, even in Gentile churches. Who could have been like, Abraham who? They could have been like, we are, Abraham, that stuff's just kind of all distant. I was, I'm not a Jew, so I can't connect to that story, but yet we sing together. Father Abraham, just like these Gentile churches in Rome. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's in Romans. Here in Galatians chapter 3. Somewhere, yeah. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. In James, it's used as just an illustration that should be right on the lips and the tongues of those people. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. It appears that the Christian churches, the Christian households, he was like a household name 2,000 years after he lived. My question for you is, can he be a household name 4,000 years after he lived in your home? where I don't feel like I have to sweat going back reading this old ancient stuff about Leviticus 16. Because it's like, oh, that's tired, man. What does that have to do with any of us? Where we realize it has everything to do with us because you are dining on it in your home. You know about the Day of Atonement. You know about Abraham's promises. You know at what point he, he was renamed Abraham. Where you are so saturated in your homes where your kids know who Abraham is, not just in a song, but as their father and one to imitate because he's imitatable. 
Man, the Hebrews context, this illustration and this connection to this guy to imitate would have traveled because they are Abraham's heirs just like we are. And God wants them to see that though they are old and barren, now we don't know how old they were. I'm talking metaphorically. They are impotent in Rome. They are facing extinction in Rome. At Nero's hand, at Domitian's hand, at whoever, name the emperor that didn't like the Christians. The synagogue is a threat to them. Man, they're, they're old and barren. They have every reason in the world not to believe God, yet the Hebrews preacher is saying, believe God and imitate Abraham. You are seemingly impotent in the heart of the Roman Empire. And you, like Abraham, are being tested even beyond when facing persecution and trial. And it's not punishment any more than it was for Abraham. God is going to be glorified in that as they're being tested. And they should be strongly encouraged to wait for the promises to be fulfilled. To wait for their inheritance that's coming. They should believe God and wait on him. In some ways, what he's saying is, Hebrews Church, and what I'm saying to you this morning, Cross Point Fellowship, is we're hiking up the mountain. We're plotting. I mean, I'm going to be real honest. Now, are there days where we're skipping? Yeah, man, sure. But man, there are times where we're hiking up the mountain saying, golly, Where's the sacrifice? And then it's kind of occurred. Hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. Am I it? Wait a minute. What's about to happen? We're hiking up the mountain in some ways. He's saying, Hebrews Church, you're hiking up the mountain, but keep believing God. And in his time, you're going to come down the mountain with the sun. Hang in there just like your father Abraham did. Man, imitate Abraham, Hebrews Church. Imitate Abraham, cross point. Now, the second thing, imitate Abraham, not because Abraham is so special. We already acknowledge the fact that Abraham did not obey and believe perfectly He was pretty human. We didn't even get into the whole thing about, hey, play like you're my sister. I mean, this guy was human as they come. Believe or imitate Abraham because God can be trusted. That's why we should imitate Abraham. Because God can be trusted. He makes good on his promises and he's proven it in what he did with Abraham. Against all odds, he makes good on his promises. Against all odds. He swore an oath against himself in some ways. Basically what he's saying when he swore an oath against himself, he's saying, you know what, what I'm doing here when I'm making this promise to you, Abraham, and to your heirs, make my name mud if I don't follow through on it. That's what God's saying. Make my name mud if I don't follow through on this promise I'm making to you, Abraham, and to your heirs. Because God makes good on his promises. I thought of some promises that I enjoy 
There were some promises that came to mind just as I was thinking about him making good on promises. I thought I would just share a few with you. We can enjoy together that we have a God that keeps his promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1. Yes? Does anybody need that encouragement ever? What time is it? I need it. Lord, yes, I need it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Never. Billy Vaughn. Christian Hass. Danielle. Zach and Jean, I will never leave you or forsake you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Matthew 11. Does anybody need that? Ever? Man, that's some good promises. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I need that promise. Man, I need it. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. Even if your eyes might be telling you this is evil, I have plans for welfare to give you a future and a hope. Do you might need that? Does anybody need that promise? Isaiah 40, 29, he gives power to the faint. Some of you are faint because I talk with you. I'm faint. What time is it? Man, let's be real honest. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Does anybody need that? Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Man, that's a good promise. Wait. And he'll bear you up. Romans 8, 37. Know in all these things, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sore, with a, a danger or a sword, we could put in their cancer, we could put in their loss, we could put in their pain, we could put in their suffering, we could put in their divorce, we could put in their heartbreak of every sort, not, not in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I need that promise. For you, I need that promise. I've got no counsel for you apart from those kind of promises that I'm clinging to just like I hope you are. That's all we've got. But man, those promises are as sure as Isaac walking down the mountain with Abraham that day. Man, those are good promises. Now, the third thing, I treasure those two things. I want Abraham to become more of the conversation in our home. I want us to be more mindful of the promises that he's made to us at those times when we as a family or when I as a worshiper need him. But man, this third thing I'm telling you, I treasure I, I told Scott, I don't know what, 
the sermon's going to be like this morning. It might be a soup sandwich, but you know what? I'm good with it because you're going to get this. What I've wrestled with all week and wondered about all week as I've studied is I've, I've asked the question, is the, the setting, how he just so easily moves from, from Abraham as an illustration, as a case study, as a guide to imitate, to what Christ has achieved and done for us? And I've been asking the question all week, is Christ our Isaac? Is Christ the answer to the promises? And man, I'm delighted at what I found. I want you to see this passage. It's the last place I'm going to have you go this morning. 2 Corinthians 1. Second Corinthians 1. I'm asking the question all week long, is Christ our Isaac? Contextually, is he the, the answer to the promise? Is he ultimately our inheritance? Himself, he himself. Is he the carrot? Is he the treasure? And is he our Isaac? In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, I found this. For in all the promises of God, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him. So as I'm asking this question all week long, is Christ our Isaac? And I find this encouragement in 2 Corinthians that he is the fulfillment of every promise that's ever been made. He is himself the yes of those promises for the Hebrews church. And for us as heirs of the promise. For we, like Abraham and Sarah, are barren. We, like Abraham and Sarah, are old, facing extinction. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is no way to inject life into our scenario. We can't do anything about our lot. We have no victory over death. Death has a sting for us. Yet unto us, a son was born. Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he considered these things. Behold, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Man, yes, yes, he is our Isaac. And yes, a son has been born to us, a bunch of barren, hopeless folk facing extinction. Yet this son was born, and this son penetrated where we couldn't go as our forerunner and as our trailblazer. Just like the high priest on the day of atonement. Preparing for the weeks coming, studying the priest. 
I found that the high priest had bells sewn into the hem of his garments. And those bells served a purpose on the Day of Atonement. As all the fugitives are standing around outside, hoping Aaron's getting it right, you could hear the bell in there if he was doing his job and if he was still alive. And hearing that little bell tinkle, tink, 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 and you're saying, yes, get it done, Aaron. Get it done, Aaron. You're hearing that bell, and it's music because it means your sins are being paid for. They're being atoned for. And I thought about how beautiful that Christ is our high priest, and I hear that bell on him as he's dragging, beaten, being dragged from trial to trial. I hear that bell, tink, tink, tink. I hear that bell as he's dragging that crossbeam down the Via Dolorosa. I hear that bell. I hear that bell as he's submitting to wooden nails and being nailed to a cross and dying over the course of hours, being mocked, being jeered. He didn't have the holy garments on because he didn't need them. He stripped, but I hear the bell until he says it's finished. And those three days of silence, man, what three days of silence. But then Easter morning, man, do you hear the bell? Man, when you hear those bells chime Easter morning, I don't know if there's a connection to Churches chiming their bells on Easter, but boy, it ought to be because it meant the high priest was alive. He was in the holiest of holies because he did his job. Man, and our hope in him is as sure as an anchor in bedrock. Man, it's a good hope because it's anchored to the throne. My soul needs an anchor, and yours does too, whether you know it or not. And this is the only anchor, period. There are no others that are true. There are no others that will stay moored when you lose your son to a drunk driver. Or will stay moored when you're facing cancer. Or when you're facing somebody bailing on a marriage. Or when you're facing some horrible report. Or you're facing the loss of something that's dear to you. There are no other anchors that stand up to that other than this anchor. Our forerunner went where we couldn't go and he established a beachhead there. Man, our hope is fixed there because he's seated there. His presence there is corroboration of our hope. To many we look as foolish as Abraham did or Noah or David. But man, I'm good with it. I know where he is. And that's where my hope is. It's not just a feeling. It is objective substance. Hope in Hebrews is not a feeling. Hope in the book of Hebrews, when you see that word in the book of Hebrews, you will see substance next to it. You will see a work done. Or you will see a person in Christ doing something. It is not a feeling that you're just supposed to conjure up, just put on a happy face. It is something, objective substance that we can hold fast to. And Christ's presence in the throne room is corroboration of ours. Now, we're going to have the supper. And I'm going to turn to Matthew 26 for our supper. You can turn there if you'd like or you can just listen.
I'd like for in our supper for us to consider something that he's promised us that we can bank on and something that we remember every week when we have the meal. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here's the promise. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The promise there is I'm coming back for you. And we're going to have this meal again together. Between now and then, every time you gather, you do this in remembrance of me. Man, every time we gather, we remember a promise made to us. He is our Isaac. He is our Isaac, and we are the world's Abrahams. Believing against all odds, trusting him no matter the circumstances, no matter how grim it appears. No matter how hopeless, we never lose hope. So let's distribute the elements and then we'll together enjoy our forerunner.